Hello guys, welcome to the podcast. In today's episode, we spoke about stress and how it actually impacts your body composition in terms of how much muscle you can build and how efficiently you can lose fat. Then we spoke quite a lot about how to reduce stress and methods that we employ ourselves and with clients. Towards the end of the podcast, there was sort of a bit of lagging between the conversation. There was some sort of unstable internet connection. So apologies if there's any points in the podcast that you can't hear what's being said. If you need either of us to clear anything up, then just give us a message over Instagram at coach.comada or at silverjacks underscore. Hello and welcome to episode three of the Coffee and Coaching podcast. Today we're going to be talking about stress and a bit about the nervous system and how they will impact your body composition. So how much muscle you can grow and the the rate of fat loss we can achieve. Um, welcome Jack, what coffee have you got today? As always, I've got the Lavazza because you can get about six kilos of it in Costco for about four quid. And it's stronger. Lad, <laughs> you need to switch it up. It's a, the, the podcast is called Coffee and Coaching. You can't rock up with the same coffee every week, man. Desperate times, mate. This is the lockdown. I can't be going out just for coffee. That's not an essential shopping trip, mate. Lad, you should have you should have like a full array of different coffees if you if you're if you're part of a podcast called Coffee and Coaching. I add, right. I had three like specialty ones and I've hammered through them because they were only in little bags. There was a hazelnut one. There was a caramel one. It was the coffee. It was the ground coffee as well. So it wasn't just like the coffee beans, the coffee granules, sorry. You had to put it in the press and stuff. They were lovely, but because they were lovely, the, the, they lasted fucking no time at all. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm actually, I'm just, uh, we've been a basic bitch again and got a coffee machine today, so I should probably shut up. So you're there sitting there telling me I need to step yeah. up and you went and got a basic bitch coffee machine coffee. It is it is a decent one today though. It's um it's like it's an Americano intenso, so it's basically like a full cup of espressos, which is awesome. Nice. I'm feeling a bit mentally fatigued today, so hopefully it can pair me up on I've also paired it with a support macchinado. Just right. for that extra cognitive enhancement. I actually I found a, a tub in the back of the cupboard which I was buzzing about. I didn't even know I had any. Ah, I love doing that in your little subs cupboard when you find a load in the yeah. back. You just find something random in the back. Fantastic. I'm knocking around there, but I reckon it'd be rock hard now. <laughs> um, right. So you get into it. Let's go. So today's about stress. I feel. That stress is very underestimated and the impact that it can have upon body composition is very underestimated by those in the fitness industry. Um, it's sort of completely forgotten about and lots of people seem to just consider the very basics of calories in, calories out. And if you want to gain muscle, train hard and eat in an energy, energy surplus or a calorie surplus. If you want to lose fat, eat in a calorie deficit. But they completely neglect stress and I think it, it's a massively massively important component of making sure that you achieve the body composition that you want um, I think we're, we're going to start by talking about what about the nervous system and how what, what actually is stress because 
when people say, oh, deal with stress and you'll, you'll get a better body composition if you're less stressed out. Like, what does that actually mean and how, how does stress actually affect your physiology? So I think we're going to go into that and speak a little bit about that to give some background to what we're going to talk about. Yeah. Um, I think, again, I mean, we'll, we'll come back round to it, but on the, the subject of what stress is, I think people just think of like, well, stress at work stress because the kids mm-hmm. has that impact on me in the gym and i think that's what we need to sort of dig into is the, yeah. the other um the other things that it does impact and i i've got a prime example using me which we'll come to as we get into talking about it um as we were trying to push my food at the start yeah. of the year um and how it impacted that but if you want to jump in and start talking about the nervous system and how how that works yes and so basically what the nervous system is a bodily system which is basically responsible for absolutely everything that goes on in your body um but what we're really concerned with today is one part of it called the autonomic nervous system and that basically in complete control of all the involuntary shit that goes on in your body so regulating your heart rate your breathing rate hormones and, and stuff like that that you actually you can't consciously control it um and within the autonomic nervous system there's sort of two um subcategories if you want to call it that um one is sympathetic and the other is parasympathetic so we can be sympathetically stimulated or sympathetic dominant or parasympathetic dominance in, in any one state. And your body will always be sort of on a continuum between the two. Normally at rest, what what we'll see is your, your parasympathetic state will be or will be more parasympathetically stimulated. Um, it's basically the one that will sort of bring your heart rate down. It's the one that we, we want to be in most of the time. It is sort of a rest and recovery focused so it will keep your heart rate low naturally your heart rate wants to rest at about 120 beats a minute that's where it is programmed to be normally and when we're parasympathetically stimulated it will pull it down to a resting heart rate it will regulate blood pressure and make sure everything is just sort of um in a, in a restful state which is where we want to be with, with low levels of stress that's where we want to be normally and when we are sympathetically stimulated, especially the when we are in the gym or we're out running or we're in a fight, the complete opposite. Your heart rate will go up, blood pressure will go up, breathing rate will go up, and we'll also see um, adrenaline and cortisol and hormones that are uh, designed to deal with high levels of stress will be released. And the the reason behind that is to simply. Um, increase your ability to perform in whatever situation you're in so if you're in a fight obviously if you're running from a lion it's a better example because obviously it's a mechanism of evolution if you have a high heart rate and higher breathing rate you can deliver more oxygen to work muscle so you can run faster and what obviously that is that is that is a very essential part of of human biology we need that to be able to perform in the gym we need that to be able to to achieve a, a stimulus in the gym but we don't want to be here all the time 
I think we'll come into it soon. But being synthetically stimulated all the time is, is something that can very easily happen. And that is then what plays negatively into, into a body composition. Definitely. Um, I think as well, for me, because I am a simple human with a simple mind, I will uh, remember the two states as uh, like a rest and digest state. So that's your parasympathetic state where your body is resting, trying to recover. And then the sympathetic state as the fight or flight state. Um, and it just sort of... I think most people are aware of or have heard of fight or flight. And if you think of what, what reaction you would have to having to fight or to, to run away, it sort of keys you into the things that would then happen within your body to allow that to happen in the same way with the parasympathetic state being the rest and digest. It sort of outlines the two big things that that, that being in that state helps with. Yeah, I think... Um... Massively overcomplicated, and you've just said that in ten words. Well done. <laughs> simple mind, mate. I can I, I simplify things because I am a simple human. It's, it's correct, though. It's, it's all we need. I think. Um, should we should we chat about how those actually play into body composition? Yeah, let's jump into that. So, obviously, do you want to start with? the sympathetic because obviously we're not going to focus on that as much today and we'll just sort of touch on how yeah. he's into training and stuff and then move on to the more parasympathetic stuff which is going to be a, a bigger focus of today's podcast um, so sympathetic stimulation or the fight and flight as Jack just said that, so examples of how you can be sympathetically stimulated, as we said at the start, it's literally things like being stressed at work, um, having an argument with your partner, um, missing the train, all tiny things like that are going to stimulate your sympathetic nervous system, um, as well as the obvious things like training really hard in the gym, that's going to sympathetically stimulate you as well. Um, and I think it'd be worth understanding that we do need a degree of, of of stress or sympathetic stimulation. Obviously, we want to be able to create that stress so that we can trigger a response in the body to to grow some muscle. Um, but we need we need to manage our levels. And what we see, what we see when we are massively sympathetically stimulated, we we see um, changes in in the hormonal profile or our how our hormones are secreted and released. So I think the two the two biggest that we probably wanna wanna talk about in terms of body composition are leptin and ghrelin. So when we are when we're looking to this more applies to those in a diet phase. So if you're trying to create a calorie deficit, I mean you're gonna be eating less food most likely. So I think they, these really mostly apply to, to those of you who are dieting. But leptin is the is the hormone that's responsible for for satiety, so making you feel full once you've eaten. And ghrelin is the hormone that's responsible for making you feel for, for making you feel hungry, sorry. Um, um 
what we see with sympathetic stimulation is we see lower levels of leptin and higher levels of ghrelin. So you actually feel hungrier and you're less satiated with the food that you do actually eat. And it's sort of a, again, going back to evolutionary thing, if you're in a time of famine and you're sympathetically stimulated, your body wants to drive you to eat more food. So it does that by by affecting hunger hormones in a way to make you desire more food so that you eat. And that, that obviously negatively plays into, into you trying to keep calorie deficit. If you're if you're eating less food anyway, you're gonna be less you're gonna be more hungry. But then to to compound the hunger with higher ghrelin levels and then to compound it further with lower leptin levels is not not ideal if you're trying to create that that calorie deficit. And then with that as well, if regardless of whether you're in a deficit or not, what as soon as you start training or you increase your the amount you are training, you're gonna increase your hunger levels as well. You're gonna increase your you're gonna increase your, your ghrelin levels just through exercise because it's a response. Your body's now moving more, so it's then signaling you need to eat more. So if you then combine that with being a calorie deficit, and then you combine that with being in or being in situations that cause increased stress, you've got like multiple things causing you to want to eat more. And if you yeah. ease one of those by reducing the stresses or um, reducing or improving your ability to deal with the stresses, then you're going to reduce some of that ghrelin production and reduce how hungry you actually feel. Yeah. Um, I think what we probably should have spoke about first is cortisol. I think that's the most obvious one, which I've just remembered. Yeah. I think... Obviously, cortisol, for those of you who don't know, is, is a stress hormone, probably the most well-known stress hormone. So, obviously, when we're massively sympathetically stimulated, we see increases in cortisol. And we know that's a catabolic hormone. It, it will inhibit um, the, the ability of testosterone to produce a muscle growth response to sort of blunt the effect of testosterone. And we know testosterone obviously is massive in in muscle growth. Just as the you said, quote from the webinar. Um, well, yeah, so if we're seeing loads and loads of, if we're seeing more higher levels of cortisol, we're just seeing less lower levels of testosterone. So that, is obviously not ideal when we're trying to to increase muscle mass and that is generally always the goal regardless of what your your body composition goal is if you want to lose fat well it's obviously going to still be beneficial to to grow muscle because now your metabolic rate tired and so on and all the rest of it if your goal is to build muscle then obviously that's just self-explanatory so we want to reduce cortisol as much as possible and and again we, if we can then reduce the sympathetic stimulation that we see, we're going to reduce the cortisol and have a greater impact on the testosterone levels. Um, yeah. um, do you want to chat about insulin at all? Yeah, I was going to bring up a sort of like an off-season, like a gaining phase and how stress mm. sort of impacts that and how sort of anecdotally it affected me. Um, so not only... 
are there like the obvious stresses? So when I, when I say stresses, stresses are things that inhibit, things that um, cause a stress response in the body. So a stressor can be anything. It can be both positive and negative. Um, it could be something good happening, like moving house, buying a new house is stressful. It is a stressor. It causes a stress response, even if it makes you feel good. Uh, so multiple different stresses, some being good, some being bad, all still elicit a stress response in the body. Um, but not only that, from like external stresses, you've also got internal stresses. So if you're pushing food, if you're trying to increase, like if you're trying to put muscle on, you're trying to get bigger, get stronger, you're going to have to increase your food. If your weight's not going up, then you're going to have to increase your food again. If you're, if you're, if you're stuck in a certain weight, which is obviously what I done uh, during the last, during my last like gaining phase, I got to around, it was like 225, 230 pounds and sort of stuck there, couldn't push past it. I was pushing food, pushing food, pushing food, weight wasn't shifting. And obviously not pushing food to where I was just like consuming like fast food and everything, but like was 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 steadily increasing my carbs, trying to get the weight to go up. And rather than me weight going up, all that happened was because of the added stresses, the internal stresses of having loads of carbs that needed digesting and not being able to produce enough insulin to digest all those carbs, they weren't getting digested. So they were just going straight through and I was having to then excrete them out, basically. Um, <laughs> but because there was that much carbs passing through my digestive system, my digestive system's then stressed, more stressed than it needs to be. So it's underperforming. So then all the other nutrients that I'm eating, the carbs, the proteins, the fats, all the uh, all the vitamins and minerals and stuff that I'm consuming aren't then able to get digested as well because my digestive system's trying to get rid of all of these carbs or trying to utilize all these carbs and it can't. So then all the other systems suffer as well. So then we ended up pulling my food back or pulling my carbs back mm -hmm. slightly. And um, it was quite a, it was quite a drastic amount actually, wasn't it? I went from like three hundred grams down to like two hundred, maybe even maybe a little bit mm -hmm. less. I think I was around about four hundred grams actually at the at the highest point. We pulled back. Yeah, I think we pulled it, we pulled it by about five hundred calories, didn't yeah. we? I think we were on three and a half thousand calories, and we pulled it like five hundred calories just from carbs, didn't yeah. we? Yeah, and uh, and my weight ended up going up just because the stresses have been reduced. On on my yeah. on my digestive system, and I was able to actually process and utilize the carbs better. And obviously, even though it's an internal stressor, that it will be in it will be causing an increase in cortisol because it, it the body's sort of, the body is dealing with a stressor, even though it's internal. So not only is am I producing a load of insulin, and it's still not being enough, and um struggling to digest it, causing loads of stress within the digestive system. I'm also increasing my cortisol levels. So then I'm impacting the effectiveness of the testosterone. So it's like mm -hmm. a double negative. So the, yeah. that can impact, that can be a, a stressor, an impact of a stressor as well, not just external stresses. In, in yeah. The, the gaining phase rather than just a deficit. 
Yeah, I think it, it, it needs to be considered in, in all situations, as you say, whether you're in a deficit or whether you're in in a in a surplus. You need to consider because it will have a massive impact. I think, like literally, being in a deficit is a stressor. Being in a surplus again is a stressor to the body. I think in in some situations it's even worth just spending time at maintenance. So when when I am obviously in a little mini cut at the minute, before I go back into a gaining phase, I'm gonna spend about a month simply at maintenance, allowing digestion to to recover and just allowing bodily systems to settle. Definitely. Couldn't agree more. Um just going back to sort of the gaining phase as well, and I think I can definitely say my sleep wasn't a hundred percent, wasn't as, as good as it could have been in that off season and Again, nah, we're going to come on to the sleep side of it um, later on, but that's also playing into how well I digested food and stuff like that as well. So I think these are all things that don't really get considered sometimes, but they play such a massive role in in your in your progress, whether that's to gain weight or lose weight. Yeah. How can we reduce stress then, Jeff? So... There are a couple of ways we can reduce stress. Before we get into that, I want to, so I sort of touched on it a little bit there about different types of stresses. And there is a scale called the Social Readjustment Rating Scale. It's created by two guys called Holmes and Ra. And basically, what it is, it's a list of 43 different life events. Um, these range from all different things and they all have a different score. So number one on the score is death of a spouse and that's scored at 100. However, there's some positive ones on there. So like pregnancy, um, marriage, marriage scores 50. Um, marriage is seen as a really good thing, but scores 50 on this scale. Um, a vacation is a time where you go away to relax and to switch off. However, it's got a score of 30 and it's still scored on there as a stressor. Basically how this works is if you've experienced, you go through this list of 43 things. And if you've experienced any of those things in the last 12 months, you add that score in, you keep adding all the scores in through all the things you've experienced. So if there's been a divorce, if there's been a childbirth, if there's been a holiday, if you've got a new job, you add all these up and it gives you a number at the end of it. And then that number can sort of determine how likely you are to suffer stress related health issues. Um, so it's just the, the reason I bring that up is just, it's important to understand that just because it's not necessarily a negative stressor, it's still having, it's still causing a stress response in, in inside the body. So if you are someone who's got a very busy life, and it could be busy that you really enjoy it. It could be like you, you're self-employed and you really love the work you do, but you're just working all hours. That's still a massive stress and you still need to put things in place to, to manage that stress. So some of the things we can do, um, I'm going to get Isaac to talk you through some of the breathing stuff that he does because he's a lot more into it than I am. He knows a lot more about the breathing side of things than I do. Um, but... 
Um, one thing you can do is I call it respond instead of reacting. So if you know there's a stressful situation approaching or it's a similar situation that you've been in before and you may not have reacted the best, plan ahead for that situation and like sort of plan how you're going to deal with it, plan the worst case, plan the best case rather than just, oh, I've got this thing tomorrow and I know it's going to be stressful and then not doing anything about it. And then it is really stressful because you haven't got a plan. That's massive, regardless of what it is, whether it's good or bad. Like if we've got a massive workload, both me and Isaac as coaches, if we didn't plan our days ahead of time or we didn't plan like our stuff around our clients and our, our programming and stuff, our stress levels would be through the roof. So it's only through responding to situations rather than reacting to them that we're able to manage that stress. Exercise obviously plays a massive part in reducing cortisol and just helping you feel less stressed. Um, a lot of the time, I know for a lot of people, me included, that sometimes you will go to the gym and you will train and it is solely just to clear your head and it's just a, a release in your head rather than actually training for a specific result, body composition-wise. I think, can I just interrupt you there, Jeff? I think it would be worth noting there as well that cortisol can, like training can, if you're a dickhead and you're training with too much volume and you're training too often and you're training for too long, you are overtraining and you're actually spiking your cortisol. I think when you're looking for for increases or gains in the gym. Gains, bro. Sound like a fucking... Gains, bro. <laughs> um, when you're looking for gains, bro, you... Like, this is, this is how I put it to clients when I'm trying to explain the stresses. Like, it's a, when you're trying to achieve a, a muscle growth or something like that or, or anything in the gym... It's a balance. You're trying to find the balance between how much you can fuck yourself up and then how much you can recover from. Because there's no point in tra- training ridiculously hard if you can't recover from that. Because then that again is gonna that that's going to then push your sympathetic stimulation higher, and we don't want that. We want to keep stress to a manageable level. So it's about finding a balance. So obviously, as you say, cortisol can be massively reduced through exercises it's it can it can be used as a bit like mental sort of break mental clarity but then if you're a dickhead and you're overtraining with loads of volume it can have the opposite effect and be counterproductive i think that's worth considering for those for those of you who are looking to to improve body composition in terms of muscle mass you need to be able to recover from whatever you're doing in the gym yeah definitely and then um Obviously, nutrition plays massively into managing stress. Um, obviously, there was an example of me pushing food too high and causing in- internal stress, like gastrointestinal stress. But also, like it's, I give you like an obvious, like real world example. If you are, say, you you are trying to lose weight and you go out drinking on the weekend again, drinking is a negative for stress it's a it's a depressant so there's that it's going to negatively impact it you then wake up and you eat shit all weekend 
you get a takeaway, mm-hmm. you eat loads of sweets, you get a big pick and mix. How often on Monday do you feel great? Like, you <laughs> never do, do you? If that was Friday night and then you eat crap on Saturday and Sunday, no one ever has gone into work on Monday and gone, do you know what? I feel boss after all that. That really helped me loads. <laughs> and that that that's the food. It, that, that is the food, simply. You, you, if you drink on Friday, you wouldn't feel shit on Monday if you ate a well-balanced diet after having a yeah. It's only through all the, the, the poor food choices from Saturday and Sunday that are compounding those negative effects and making you feel like crap on Monday. That's just like a, 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 an example that everyone, I think, will have, will have felt at some point. To show how important yeah. and how impactful your diet actually is on managing stress and managing how you feel. I think going out on the weekend and is probably the most like stressful thing that you could put put your body through. It's like <laughs> when you're going out, so you're absolutely destroying your circadian rhythm because you're going to bed at like five a.m you're exposing yourself to fuck loads of blue lights when you're not supposed to be. You're destroying your liver. You're fucking your blood sugars up when you eat a kebab on the way home. And you just continue to do so for the rest of the weekend. And you literally, everything that's working inside you physiologically, you're fighting it. Yeah, like, not only, like, alcohol is essentially a toxin to the body. Your body can't do anything with it. They can't process it, they can't utilize mm-hmm. it, so it just has to flush it out. So you've done that on day one, so your body's already on the back foot, like, fuck, we've got to get rid of all this alcohol. And then you've got a, two more days of consuming a load of crap to compound the negative effects of it. But still go out. Yeah, still go out. Just try not to fucking make things a million times worse by nailing all the shitty food from I say shitty food yeah. but I mean like high calorie like high 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 bad fat food high, high bad, bad food fat. Look, I've ran out of coffee you know what I mean food <laughs> <laughs> yeah. high in saturated fat um, like yeah. takeaways things that are cooked in like oils they're just not they're not helping you recover from the stresses that you've put your body under um, yeah but and you, you need you do need a bit of a balance don't be like me and just don't have a social life ever because you're too bothered about training yeah, the next definitely day. that's a good point that like social social events and like being social that was what i was coming to next that ties in quite nicely there that's for fun um <laughs> yeah, yeah social support and and being social and being around friends and family is a massive is a massive way of coping with stress. And so finding that balance between the overconsumption of, of alcohol and drink and actually going out and being social. I think we both understand that the the importance when like program for clients that you need to include like their social life around their work and training for it to be sustainable. Um mm-hmm. I try and build the whole program around people's life and just change the littlest amount possible that already goes on in their life and just try and build everything around it because 
we don't want to change habits. We we don't want to give someone too much to do initially because again, and there's another stressor given some trying to change someone's whole life in in the first week. Yeah, definitely. It's, it's just a ridiculous thing to ask. Um, shall I talk about breathing? Um. Yeah, sorry, mate. Absolute mind blank there. Yeah, do you want to jump in on um the breathing for us? Yes, yes. Um, so we can reduce stress by simply by manipulating how we breathe. So we can going back to sympathetic versus parasympathetic. We want to be promoting a parasympathetic state whenever we can to reduce stress and. When we see um, excessively long exhalations of breathing out slowly, it seems to be breathing out, which has the biggest impact. We see parasympathetic stimulation, so your heart rate will come down, blood pressure will come down a little bit, and by controlling that breathing, we we also we're having a knock-on effect on everything in the parasympathetic system. So it's not not simply just how you breathe slow, so you feel a bit more relaxed it literally is having a very real effect on your whole physiology. And I, well, personally, I meditate, but that, it's a little bit hippy for, for some people. What you simply need to do to promote a parasympathetic state is to is to just slow your breathing and focus on it. I, I personally think meditation is the optimal way to do so because not only are you... Um, promoting a parasympathetic state in terms of your breath and your physiology you're actually going to achieve much more through meditation in terms of psychological stresses and understanding yourself and behaviors that are, that are causing you to be in stressful situations and being able to deal with them correctly which also comes out of meditation but regardless most people think that you need to be a, a, a monk to meditate which is completely incorrect you were talking in our webinar the other day jack about um uh, the box breaths yeah the navy seal breathing technique yeah yeah uh, it actually works it's quite good um they use it so they get taught it um before they go into something called not being able to breathe um where the hands and feet are tied together and they're basically taught to drown effectively um so their hands and feet are tied together and they're thrown into a swimming pool. They have to allow themselves to sink down to the bottom of the pool so that they can then kick off the bottom of the pool up to the surface to breathe in more oxygen. And then they have to then sink again. And they basically just start, they're just left for as long as they can survive in the water. Um, just doing that basically as, as one of their one of their stress tests through through buds, through their like selection process. But before they get in the pool, they use that that breathing technique to obviously they know that there's a massive that this is their their body knows that they that there's a there's a potential to die here. So it's going into that fight or flight mode. They need to get out of that fight or flight mode. They need to reduce their heart rate. They need to reduce their breathing so that when they are taking in oxygen in the pool, they're using as little as possible and they're not. Obviously, the more you need to breathe, the more your heart's racing, the more oxygen you need to bring in. So the idea is that they slow their heart rate right down to be able to survive there for longer. Um, and it works. 
it, it really does. It's simply that it's just um, it's nasal breathing. Four seconds in, four seconds out, and it's like four to fifteen repetitions, and that all they will focus on is that breathing. They'll try and like switch off from from everything that's going on around them, and it it works. It's it's actually really effective in in trying to bring you back into that parasympathetic state. Thank you for listening. And as always, if you have any questions that you want us to answer, then hit us on Instagram. Probably is the most likely way we're going to reply. Um, coach at Coach Dr. Mara for me. Yeah, I think, I think one of my one of my clients actually watched our webinar and then messaged me saying they got a, a very stressful email from from the boss and they tried it and it just worked. Nice, nice, which is fantastic. Um, what I'm doing at the minute, with I think the little story I told you about how reducing stress before has impacted my rate of fat loss. I think one of the the things I've been doing with breathing has actually sort of been to to utilize stress in in triggering a response to to reduce stress in the long term. So in the same way that we we train the we train, we create a stress and we get an adaptation from it. I've been doing that with breathing to to in turn try and reduce stress overall in the long term so I've been sort of utilising certain breathing techniques to basically create altitude conditions in the blood so again that's a stressor so I'm trying to increase the levels of carbon dioxide in my blood by basically nasal breathing and breathe for about 5 or 10 minutes a day really shallow slow breathing through the nose and creating a, a decent amount of air hunger where I feel like I need to take a massive breath in. But um, the, the idea behind it is to raise levels of carbon dioxide in the blood and that, that that then will translate to me being able to tolerate a greater level of carbon dioxide whenever whenever I do actually do anything. Um, if, I'm, if my body's used to higher levels of carbon dioxide, it means it can take more. And what we see with high levels of carbon dioxide in the blood, we see greater oxygen delivery to the muscle cells because basically red blood cells will think, right, there's so much carbon dioxide, I need to get rid of it. So I'm going to drop this oxygen off at the cell and let it do it. I'm going to grab this carbon dioxide and I'm going to take it to the lungs where we can breathe it out. And so by increasing carbon dioxide tolerance, we improve our ability to drop oxygen off at a cell. And that then means that our cell can now work aerobically throughout uh, a greater a greater proportion of the day. So simply, instead of burning potentially maybe, I'm just plucking these numbers out of my head, maybe 70% of your energy at rest, maybe, maybe um, achieved or, or taken from fast, because we're working, we've now got a great aerobic capacity and our cells can work aerobically much easier. Now, instead of, of, of burning 70% of our energy from fat potentially, now it could be 80 because our body now has a greater ability to, 
to work at that intensity and it's it's much much easier. Um, so that you said is a big impact on that as well doing. after doing it, like with your weight loss at the moment. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's what I'm saying. It's literally, I think I I attribute most of most of what the the excessive or not excessive the the additional rate of fat loss. I think that's the only thing that yeah, I've that's changed. Been really. The only major factor changed um, in everything in what you so. Yeah. And the and heart rates come down by about seven beats a minute as well, which That's is insane. Isn't it? Mm, just simply through through um, simulating altitude conditions in the blood. So again, like levering stress, like utilizing stress to create a response, and then that is is now sort of led to, to a reduced level of stress ac- across the day because now my body finds a given intensity much easier. A little bit off topic to. from that, but have you ever seen the guy, he essentially started with like breathing techniques and stuff to manipulate his body, but he can now manipulate his core body temperature. Was that his Wim name? Hof. The guy who can swim in, like, in cold water and heat himself up. Yeah. yeah. Insane. I was, I was listening to an interview with him the other day. And like they've done tests on him and everything, and he can literally sit and increase his core body temperature or reduce his core body temperature. That's mental. I seen him getting interviewed by Russell Brand, and he did tests on him where they basically infected him with a virus, and then yeah, he just fought yeah. it off himself in like yeah, it's hours. Insane. He's just like, all right, okay, I'll just, I'll just get rid of that. Because that man has got absolute control of his nervous system. That's it. Yeah, just like, which is insane, isn't it? It's like uncomprehensible. Yeah, it's mental. It's absolutely mental. I um, I'm so glad you know. Just imagine <laughs> you would have sounded like a dickhead. <laughs> imagine jumping in the fucking Arctic waters, mate. Imagine the rhino sat. You'd never be hot or cold again. Like if you were sitting in the house, like I'll put the heating on. Oh, actually, no. I'll just tell myself to be warmer. Like <laughs> fucking insane. You gonna put a coat on? No. I think. I think. I think. I think being cold is is a bit of a mindset, though. To some extent, I don't think I could get in the Arctic waters, but I, I actually was was. I've been aware of them for a few years and when I was I was in Slovakia recently and it was like minus sun. So it was yeah. pretty pretty fucking cold. And one morning I just couldn't be asked getting dressed. So I woke up and I had um a pair of shorts. I just threw a pair of shorts on and my sliders and walked to the shop <laughs> with no top on and didn't even have any bills on or socks or anything and just walked to the little and then found and it was like minus sun. Minus like four degrees or something, I was fine because I just told myself I was warm. Yeah, so I went into a meditative state and just I said this to you. I I think it helps help. This helps me on legs as well. I experienced the pain rather than succumbing to it. So I like I felt what it actually yeah. felt yeah, like yeah, on the yeah, skin yeah, yeah. to be cold. What were you we saying this yeah, on the leg extension? Weren't we? I can, I just be curious about how it feels. Like it's not 
it doesn't actually hurt when you just look at it with, it, with a curious mind. You just look at it and go, oh, that, that's quite painful. And you think about how each rep feels differently to the last one. And it sort of just takes your mind yeah, completely like, off I the pain. Because I know, like, I'll admit it, like, I go into a set or would would do thinking this is going to hurt so much. This is gonna. This is gonna be the worst thing ever. And nah, you, you, yeah. you set yourself up for a fail already, because you? you're waiting for the pain to come. Yeah. Whereas if you just go and just go right, I'm just gonna keep going, and then you start thinking, oh, that feels yeah. weird. Oh, that feels fucking even weirder. There, I've never felt that in that bit before. And you end up like five, <laughs> six, seven reps deeper than you thought you were going. Yeah. I think that the breathing again, coming back to it, is like an anchor point, isn't it? It was like we're talking there about the leg extension. It's when, like, you're using your focus and how yeah. your quad feels. That's your anchor point. Like, and again, in meditation and what Wim Hof does, he's focusing on his breathing, and it's it's not a distraction. It's a, it's a, an anchor point is the best way to say it. If people understand what I mean, and an anchor point to basically take your mind off yeah. whatever pain you're experiencing <laughs> again to reduce stress yeah that's essentially, essentially all you because I'm sure I'm sure I'm sure I would experience a, a greater cortisol spike by jumping into the after quarters than Wim Hof would yeah. <laughs> yeah I think every single fibre of my body would be telling me to absolutely get the fuck out of that water within like half a second <laughs> yeah before yeah. you've even jumped in. Like I wouldn't email to get yeah, I wouldn't email to get undressed. Yeah. <laughs> outside the water. Fight or flight system kicking in like a hundred meters away from the water. <laughs> um but yeah, I think breathe breathing is huge and reducing stress. So like however you want to approach it. If meditation is too much for you, then don't do it. But if you're not a muppet, then and you're not scared of trying new things, then do it. Definitely. Um, should we move on to sleep and how that sort of affects yeah. our stress levels? Yeah, I think sleep is a is a huge one that people just are just fully not clued up on at all, and you can hugely reduce your stress by getting a good sleep. And also, obviously, it's just massively important for absolutely every process in the body, regardless. But in terms of stress, you can you can massively improve it. And conversely, if you have bad sleep, you will massively increase it. So if you... <laughs> I said this the other day. If you want to get jacked and not die of a heart attack, get then to get to bed. <laughs> because literally... It, it is it is very real. It, bad sleep is massively, massively linked to, to heart disease and <clears throat> everything, dementia, also diabetes, because it because it has such an impact on the sympathetic nervous system. If we're having a bad sleep, you are stimulating that sympathetic system, and we see insulin resistance, so we see greater level or greater likelihood um, of developing diabetes for the. People who well, the death, the you were saying about uh, during daylight savings, is it? Yeah, yeah. So that day, every year when we lose an hour of sleep, 
it didn't affect us at all this year because everyone was on lockdown, so nothing happened. I don't think. But when we normally use lose an hour of sleep, sorry, the following day is the day across the world where we see the greatest number of heart attacks every every year, regardless without fail, and also conversely the the, the day where we gain an hour of sleep it's also the day where we see the next day is also the day where we see the, the lowest amount of heart attacks and it's simply because it has such an impact on your sympathetic nervous system like those people that were sort of at risk a high risk of of having a heart attack anyway like the increase in all the stress hormones and the heart rate and the blood pressure has just took them over the edge and they've had a heart attack so it does have like very real instantaneous effects on your physiology just by simply having yeah. a bad sleep. That one, that one study I, I, I read one. a while ago about uh, how it impacts um, like your insulin sensitivity with like just losing an hour's sleep. Yeah. Um, how they tested, I mean, mm. I can't remember the exact figures or anything, um, but basically there was the, the control group and the the test group and the, the test group reduced their sleep by one hour and then when they were tested the next morning, I think pretty much all of them um, registered as pre-diabetic or would register as pre-diabetic if that was what their resting blood sugars were at, uh, what their fat blood sugars were at all the time. <laughs> and that's from one one night where they lost an hour of sleep. Um, it's well, actually, no, it could have been a week, but either way, I think they've done it for a week. They either done it, they either tested it first after the one night or they tested it after seven days. But regardless, even if, if after seven days, so you've only lost seven hours of sleep over a week, you're pre diabetic. It's, yeah. it's insane, yeah. It's mental. And then you think about people who get like five hours sleep every single night, huge, huge impact upon everything. But like, Insulin resistance is is huge. Like we spoke about this in the webinar, didn't we? It's insulin is basically <clears throat> the thing that causes, or insulin resistance is the thing that causes diabetes. And insulin is responsible for basically pulling in um, carbohydrates and, and proteins into your muscle cells from your blood once you've digested them. If you're insulin resistant, it means insulin basically doesn't work correctly. So you have an inability to remove sugars from your blood. And that, again, is, is a huge stressor. Your body doesn't it doesn't want to have any, as we said before, it doesn't want to have any elevation really in blood sugars. Blood. It wants Someone to keep them sorted. Carry on talking, I'll be back. Fucking hell, lad. <laughs> so, oh, I broke me trying to fought the bastard. Um... Insulin resistance, I was talking about, wasn't I? So when <clears throat> when we see elevated, oh yeah, so homeostasis, we want to keep blood sugar sort of in a, in a very confined range. We don't want it to elevate. We don't want it to go down too low. Um, that will cause massive implications. Like obviously, if if you look at a diabetic who can't control their blood sugar, if it goes up too high, they die if it goes too low. They die, and that's obviously if they're not looked after properly. When that does happen, so obviously that's not going to happen to you if you have a bad night's sleep. But it just 
again, reiterate how important insulin is and the con- then if you're insulin resistant, it means you're going to be to some degree unable to control those blood sugars. And again, we see with insulin resistance as well, which probably is probably some sort of link between a bad sleep and cardiovascular disease, as well as obviously increasing heart rate and blood pressure. We see with insulin resistance, greater production of VLDL cholesterol from the liver. So VLDL cholesterol is like the worst type of cholesterol. And that will, that that is basically when with, with oxidative stress, which again, we probably don't have time to go into now because we'll be talking for hours. Um, that triggers atherosclerosis, I can never say it, but basically um, clots in your arteries. And there's probably some you sort can't of link there. I'm not I'm, I'm, I know what you're on about, but I'm not <laughs> trying to wrap my mouth around that word. <laughs> um, so, yeah. Get to bed. You don't want to die. <laughs> Go to sleep. Go to sleep. But uh, just, just on, on the insulin, uh, side as well, you if you're suffering with um, chronic stress or let me get the other words off, give me two seconds. Chronic stress or repeated exposures to daily stresses, um, which is like the precursor to um, chronic stress, uh, is called... Episodic acute stress. So acute stress is like your immediate reaction to like a stressor. Episodic acute stress is like the repeated exposure to stress. Um, you'll actually increase your body will actually increase your blood glucose long term um, to help deal with being in, being um, being suffering with with like acute with uh, oh my god, I'm Tom Blank. To, to deal with chronic stress or episodic acute stress. And so if your blood glucose is elevated, you obviously need to produce insulin to reverse that, to be able to pull that glucose back into the, into the cells and the muscles when it's not needed. If your sleep isn't ideal, if you're not getting enough sleep and you're not able to then produce enough insulin, it's again compounding. The two of them are both working together negatively to hook you up, basically, because you're not mm. your blood glucose is just going to be through the roof all day. Mm. And as well, like everything we spoke about before with sympathetic stimulation, like we were speaking before about leptin and ghrelin, sleep. There's been studies on sleep and how it impacts um, hunger and, and energy and or calorie intake the next day. There was a study by Khatib in 2017, and they basically partially sleep-deprived people, so not even fully sleep-deprived. I think it was a few hours a night, if I remember correctly. And the next day, they basically had a buffet out with the control group who slept normally, and then the group who were partially sleep-deprived. Yes, I've read this. And yes, yes, yes. Yeah, I know what you're about. Yeah. And they literally, the group that was sleep deprived on average across the day, increased their their calorie intake, or had an increase in calorie intake compared to their baseline 
normal what they were eating before by 385 calories and most of those calories came from from saturated fat which again is is probably the type of fat that is is most linked to to poor health and, and heart disease and mortality so it's, again it's like everything links into into each other like you're basically it's, it's like a big loop it's like a big someone's like every single thing that is caused by stress is also stressing something else out which feeds back into more stress and it's, yeah, it's like a, a consistent feedback loop yeah we should probably tell people Definitely how to optimize yeah, their sleep do you reckon big one uh, one thing I think we should bring up because it that, it, both, it makes me and you both laugh. Um, important thing when when you're assessing like your quality of sleep before we get into how to improve your quality of sleep because I think a lot of people might think oh well I sleep okay anyway. If you wake up if you go to bed at nine o'clock and you're not getting up till seven the next day, if you wake up between nine and seven for whatever reason, whether it's to go for a wee or whether it's because your mouth's dry, you, you've you got poor sleep. <laughs> like, <laughs> you've got Simple poor sleep that. and it can be improved. Um, and I think that that's, that's the biggest thing we need to address first. If you're sitting there now thinking, oh, my sleep's okay. If you wake up during the night, it's not. Simple as that. It's not. Yeah, it, it's so, not. If you do wake up during the night, listen to this bit now. I'm telling you. <laughs> <laughs> I'm telling you, lad. Um, so, obviously, for, for optimal sleep, as Jasper said, we, we need uh, a sleep pretty much all the way through. We need a high-quality sleep and we need efficient transitions between sleep cycles. So we can't just sort of it, yeah we can be asleep for the whole night and that that's probably a good thing but definitely a good thing but we also need to make sure that our sleep cycles are moving efficiently and it, it's very hard to track but if we if we set everything up correctly then we can sort of assume that we are and if we're not waking up again we we can assume that that we are moving between them pretty efficiently but as well as that as well as the quantity, we also need the quantity so. It seems to be at least seven hours we need to be adequate for, for most people, but I think you just got to sort of um have a bit of a nap, yeah. have a bit of nouse about you. If you wake up feeling tired, you're not getting enough sleep or the quality is not good. So obviously as you just said as well, if you're waking up in the night it, it's it's no good. Sometimes as well you can we, oversleep. Like I know there's the Set like so like we, I always tell people seven to nine hours, but is that there's the like six to eight, but then the seven yeah. to nine feeds into the sleep cycles a little bit better. Um, but I know personally, if mm. I'm on the if I'm on the higher end of that, I'll wake up well worse off than I would if I go on the shorter end of that. If that makes sense, if I go. Yeah. Well. Yeah. Literally. Yeah. If I go to the, if I push for a nine hour sleep. I'll wake up and I'll be useless all day. I'll be groggy all day. Whereas if I get like around the seven hour mark, I'm a lot more efficient. I'm a lot more first thing in the morning. So that's important yeah. as well to sort of figure out your personal like sleep that works for you. Yeah. 
definitely. I think it feeds in nicely to circadian rhythms and what they are. So it's like your your body clock, it's a fancy way of saying body clock. So it's basically how how everything is timed in your body and it's massively dictated by light exposure. So your circadian rhythm or your body clock is not just when you fall asleep and when you wake up, it's also when hormones get secreted, when your core body temperature is affected, where at certain points in the day it's lower, certain points in the day it's higher. Um, neurochemistry will be impacted by your circadian rhythm. And we, we basically want to be exposing ourselves to light at the same time every day, eating at the same time every day and, and waking up and going to sleep at the same time every day to basically have good circadian health and make sure that everything in our body is running smoothly and efficiently and in the correct sequence as it should be. Um, so in order to do that, well, if you do do that, that's going to make sure your sleep is, is spot on really anyway. But in order to do that, we need we, we can manipulate how we expose ourselves to light. Um, to some degree, food, some interesting research on on. Um, the times that we eat, which I think might be worth touching yeah, upon. That'll be that'll be nice um, to me. And, oh, yeah, definitely, definitely go into that. Yeah. Um. Well, temperature to yeah. some degree as well. We we might touch upon towards the end. Um. But, so I think light, light is the biggest one. So we've both recently started doing this, haven't we? We because now we have the time exposing ourselves to sunrise and sunset massive in in setting your anchor your circadian rhythm so the we need to understand about light and different wavelengths of light so at sunrise there's basically a different profile of colors that come out of the sun and hit you in the eye or the skin <laughs> <laughs> you in it doesn't really hit you in the eye. It goes into your eye. Receptors in your eye receive these certain wavelengths of light, and that will trigger a, a given response in the body, which which is going to basically set off your hormonal sequences in the correct fashion. And again, that's going to then lead into your energy levels across the day and if we can expose ourselves to sunset that is is again going to have a have a, a response and we see we see obviously get again then a different profile of colors are a presence at sunset than or at sunrise and it's basically the transition between these dark blue colors in the morning when it's when the sun dries and through to pinks and oranges and, and then through all the way to, to bright white light in the middle of the day. And then the opposite when we go from those bright colours to the darker colours. The transition of that as we watch the, the sunrise and the sunset, which triggers this response. And at sunset, we see sleep hormones get produced and, and so on. And again, basically exposing yourself to sunrise and sunset is going to allow your circadian rhythm to be anchored. Sorry, just jumping and, in. I think this, for people who like might be listening and thinking, oh, it's because we're talking about the responses that happen inside the body, it's not always apparent what's going on. 
but I think this has such a big impact on on the chemical on the chemical responses with inside the body that it's it's immediately noticeable. The first time you do it, if you were to yeah. if you were to tonight set a time to go out and be in the sunset and watch the sunset, and then get up the next morning and watch the sunrise, doing both of those, you will you will notice during watching the sunset that you you begin to feel tired, that you begin to yawn. And you will notice if you get up and you might get up tomorrow morning absolutely fuming that you've got yourself up early to go and watch the sunrise. And I guarantee you'll go and watch the sunrise and you'll be in a far better mood and you'll have a great day. Like it's the chemical responses, although yeah. they're, they're happening internally because of the chemicals that are being released and the, uh, the, it manages that they're released at the proper time. Especially things like your serotonin and, and melatonin, it it has a big immediate impact on your mood and on on how you actually feel there and then. So all of it sounds like we're talking about things that are going on that you definitely really notice. It does have like an immediate effect from doing it, even just the first time. Yeah, one hundred percent. And. I think it'd be worth touching up on blue light before we try and you just you just set me up nicely to go into what I was gonna talk about with carbs there. But I think before we move on it would be worth talking about blue light. Blue light bad. Um, so blue, blue light, light bad. You know the way I keep simpli- well, simpli- simplifying things for my simple brain. Yeah, blue light bad. <laughs> <laughs> blue light bad. <laughs> Very bad. Um, what, what blue light is basically is it's not necessarily things that are blue it's just a certain wavelength of light which is received by the skin and the eyes receptors in the skin and the eyes which will then basically tell your body that it's daytime so if you if you've just gone and, and watched the sunset and now you're feeling all sleepy and it's time for bed and it's dark outside and then you go on your phone and your laptop and watch the TV. You're basically just undoing all all the work that your body is doing to try and make you go to sleep. You're basically telling your body right now it's still daytime. We don't need to secrete these sleep hormones yet. We don't need to start feeling sleepy yet because it's still daytime. Let's continue to to function as we normally would. We're not out of bed yet, and so we want to really limit the the exposure to blue light before we go to bed. Because it's gonna impact melatonin, as Jack just said, is is the the hormone which allows us to go into a deep sleep cycle and stay there, and and get an efficient sleep and get good transition between sleep cycles. And if we're exposing ourselves to blue light before bed, we're going to we're going to basically inhibit our ability to secrete melatonin. So, reducing exposure to your phone, to any artificial device, even your bedroom light. If you can dim it, or you can just turn it off and use candles, or use a Himalayan salt lamp, which is basically uh, a lamp that, ex- that that gives off um, orangey, pinky colours. Doing things like that, or getting blue light blocking glasses, which look awesome, so cool. Um, they will basically so cool looking in the mud. You well, can pull up, you can't. I know. I know. Yeah. I wear them. I wear them out on that, don't I? Um, they will basically 
allow you to to reduce the blue light you're, you're exposed to if you if you can can wear them you can reduce the the amount that you're exposed to in general in those hours before bed when it starts to go dark you you're going to see a more efficient sleep again and you're going to be let much less likely to wake up throughout the night and improve your sleep quality um you got uh, anything else you want to say on blue lights no no that's you pretty much it there yeah I think um, I go back to what you said before about um, serotonin and and melatonin. So, bit of it's it's also been around for a while, but I haven't actually found any any decent evidence on it until until literally about an hour ago, before we filmed this, uh, before we recorded this. Sorry. Carbs before bed. Um, it's been suggested that consuming carbohydrate meal before bed can increase production of of a. What? Oh my god! What's the word? Uh, neurochemical. Yeah, I don't know. I feel like go that's on, not what I'm looking for. But I'm going to go with it anyway. A chemical. <laughs> It's just one of them mind blocks. It's not even a hard word. Neurochemical. We'll just go with that. Um, called tryptophan, and that will that is basically a precursor to serotonin. And serotonin is then a precursor to melatonin. And melatonin is the hormone that we were talking about before that allows you to go into deep sleep. So if we can eat carbs and get this release of tryptophan, then potentially it means that we're going to be able to secrete more melatonin. Um. So, I mean, it could be worth giving it a go. The study that I found, um, it it suggests having a high GI meal, so something that's pretty high in sugar, not not like pure sugary foods. They use jasmine rice versus, um, I think it was like whole wheat rice or something like that. So, some sort of carbohydrate which is easy to digest. So maybe even things like cereal or bagels, something <laughs> like that. Obviously, my favorite foods. Eating those about four hours before bed showed um, a greater um, rate of sleep onset, which is how fast you can fall asleep compared to um, a, a lower GI meal. So things like um, potatoes and things like that would would have a have a, a less a lesser effect. So basically having something an easy to digest carbohydrates a, a few hours before bed is probably going to allow you to get into a bit of a better sleep. Um so potentially worth trying it. I haven't tried it myself and I haven't noticed sorry, I have tried it myself and I haven't noticed a major difference. But I mean it could be worth giving it a go if you've if you're struggling to get to sleep. Um, I think while we're talking about food as well, we'll talk about protein intake before bed. I think it's worth noting that, although it might be good to have some calories before bed, you don't want to nail loads and loads of food before bed because that's going to have the complete opposite effect. Like we said earlier, like digestive stress is a thing. So if you're giving yourself loads and loads of food before bed, you're asking your digestive system to work really, really hard. And then you're asking your body to go to sleep while it's still got loads of work to do. Yeah. So it doesn't really work like that. Particularly protein. 
if you're eating a really complex protein source before bed, like a steak, that's probably the worst thing you could do because now you're getting lots and lots of gastric acid being released to, to trigger the start of of protein breakdown in the stomach. If you are doing that and you're getting lots of gastric acid, you, you, that's going to inhibit your body's ability to go to sleep. It seems to be gastric acid in particular. So I'd say don't eat loads of meat <laughs> in the hours before bed. If you want to, you'll probably be fine with something simple to digest, like some like whey protein or something similar like that, maybe eggs or something, but not don't eat loads of loads of meat and a, a very complex meal. Like, I, I'd even go as far as to say don't eat loads of vegetables before bed again because we've got lots of fiber. It's a lot for your body to digest. There's a lot going on. So if you are one of those people who has to eat their, their meal late, you know, even if you're in a gaming phase and you've got to try and get your food in somehow, like if you have to eat before bed, make it very easy things to digest so that we can go into a, into a yeah, proper sleep. Definitely. Um, you can look, uh, um, same with like just touching on that, on like foods, if you're unsure of what foods do digest well, you can look at um, how that like, the same way carbs, absolute brain blank, trying to get my words out there. The way carbs have... Uh, uh, no, we haven't. We've not been very good today, lad. I think we need more coffee. Um, I've just opened the monster there to try and paint me up a little bit. So the same way carbs <laughs> have a score for um, how how close they represent glucose, basically, um, their glycemic index... Protein has a has, has a score as well, um, for how easily it is digested. Basically, um, with whey protein, again, it, the way carbs are scored as cl- for how closely they are to glucose, proteins done in the same way as how closely it is to it being protein molecules or amino acids. With whey protein being scoring the highest. And then next down at the top of my head is eggs. Um, but yeah, if you, you, you can use that, you can Google that and it will give you a list of like the the, the, the top 15 um, for you to be able to go on and see what's going to digest best and what foods are best for before you go to bed that aren't going to cause a lot of a lot of work for your digestive system. I didn't actually know that. I'm gonna, gonna go and uh, find that. I was trying to think What's of the name of it. Called, it's, you know? it's similar to like G, you know, the way food's got a glycemic index or a GI. The only thing I can find here is the protein digestibility yeah. score. Um but I know there's another name for it that will give you like the chart. Um but yeah, if you look for protein digestibility protein digestibility score, it will give you um, the scores. I think the score from out of a hundred, a hundred being the the easier, the the best, and whey protein scores a hundred. That's very interesting. Um, so, I think we've covered most of what we wanted to cover. I think should we to, to round up what we've said so far. If you're trying to improve body composition. We need to reduce stress to a manageable amount. We need to we need to leverage it to some way, to some extent. So you want to create a certain amount of 
of stress that is going to create a response in the gym. We want to stress a muscle out and we want to create a, response, a muscle growth response, but we need to manage that stress so that we're, we're optimally setting up our nervous system to allow us to recover so we can continue to train hard and we're, we're basically looking after our hormonal profile to set it up in, in the most optimal way. And we can do that through breathing techniques and making sure we're not eating we're, we're not causing lots of digestive stress and making sure that our sleep is as yeah. optimal as possible. Um, no, I think that's I'm, I'm, I'm literally now trying to think, yeah. um, trying to find the name of that thing to just throw it in at the end there. But I can't find it. I can't find the proper name for it. I know, so annoying. Um, oh, well. If anyone yeah. listens to this, they find it on but I can't find it on the interwebs. But yeah, that's us. Oh. So thanks again for joining us. This is episode three. So if you've listened to all three, thank you very much. And if it's your first time, we'll hopefully have you join us on the next one. Fantastic. Thanks again for listening and we will see you soon.